As we start this uh, Advent series today, uh, we are excited to prepare our hearts and our minds for uh, the Christmas season and for the Christmas celebration. It's uh, a high point on the Christian calendar historically. And uh, as you go out to do your shopping, you see Advent calendars everywhere. Chocolate Advent calendars, Lego Advent calendars, uh, superhero-themed Advent calendars, (laughs) every, every, every conceivable kind of Advent calendar. What does it all mean? Uh, in the Latin, the advent is, it means arrival. And so historically speaking, since about the fourth century, the church w- had made a tradition of uh, taking four weeks leading up to the celebration of the birth of Christ uh, to reflect on the fact that Christ has come and that he is going to come again. And that we as the church live in this space uh, that theologians call the already and not yet now, the already of Christ's kingdom that's been inaugurated through his uh, incarnation as he came, uh, wrote himself into human history in a very physical way in the birth in Bethlehem. And then on 33 AD on the Roman cross and three days later, the empty tomb. So in a sense, the kingdom of God has already come because Christ has come. And he kind of talked about it in the present tense in the Gospels. But we know, of course, that uh, we still live in this world that is beautiful and yet broken. And so the restoration of that kingdom is yet to come. And we live in this space in between uh, with a certainty and excitement about um, what is coming with Christ's return and then living in the reality of the day to day and everything that it means as a, as a Christian united to Christ in the midst of the, um, the struggles uh, that uh, are just a part of daily life. And so each Christmas you come to... Um, the Christmas season, the Advent season, and you can't walk 10 feet without seeing the words love, hope, joy, or peace uh, someplace. And it can sort of become a bit of a wash. It can be very easy to kind of see those words absolutely everywhere and their meanings sort of get lost in the jingle jangle of, of Christmas shopping. Um, but over the next four weeks, we want to take a look at each of these words to see that they're not a cliche. We're going to deep dive into some scripture to see that love, hope, joy, and peace are, are, are not just cliches. They're not just nice things that look good on sweaters and Christmas cards and cross-stitch. These are massive biblical themes, massive themes that span the entire meta-narrative of scripture. And so today we're going to look at the theme of love and uh that we see was on the move for millennia before that first Christmas. Uh, We're going to see that not only was love, God's love on the move uh, for millennia before that first Christmas, but love also describes the call in our lives and all of us who are united to Christ to live how we're to live in light of that first Christmas. So our text for this morning uh, is a few excerpts from the book of Genesis. Um, It's Genesis chapter uh, one, two, and three. I've chosen some verses to sort of summarize these texts, and we'll look at this this morning. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. The image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from all the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to her eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is God's word. Now maybe you're thinking to yourself, Preacher, what are you doing? This isn't very Christmassy. Where are the shepherds? Where are the angels? Where's the little drummer boy? We know he was there. Why did you choose this text? Oh, this text is very Christmassy. It's extremely Christmassy because our world, which is beautiful and broken because of the destructive power of sin that's affected everything, uh, this text reveals that our God in his great love vowed since Genesis 3 to come in Christ that first Christmas to redeem everything. So first, let's take a look at how God's love was on the move for millennia before that first Christmas. Now, love is not a, uh, a cliche, is sort of an empty sentimentality um, for us as Christians. Love is the driving force behind the existence of the universe. Love is the meaning of life itself. When you look at Genesis chapter 1, when God determines to create man, he says, let us make man in our image. He says that in verse 26. And I want to just draw your attention to the plurality. Let us make man in our image. See, the significance of this, as you know, in the Christian faith, our God is not a singularity. Our God is a trinity. He is one God. Yes, but mysteriously, he is one God in three persons. If our God was merely a singularity, then our God could not be a God of love because love, by its very essence, requires an object outside itself to direct the, your affection toward. And so if God was a singularity, our God would not be a God of love by nature. He would have needed to have created the world, created something, created an object to love. But our God is not a singularity. He's a trinity, which means before creation, from eternity past, our God in his nature was love, completely satisfied, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, enjoying one another in a, in a relationship of glorious love. And so for the Christian, we understand that the universe, the cosmos, our existence, the meaning of life, sprung forth from that love. And the significance of this love is that love didn't come after creation, love motivated it. And so because 
the love of God is the driving force behind the creation of mankind, the rejection of the love of God is underneath every destructive force that is undoing mankind. And so when you look at how our first parents in the beginning lost their favor, lost their relationship uh, with God, it didn't begin with an argument against God. It actually became with, it actually began with an attitude that argued the nature of God. When you look at what the, the, the devil says in chapter three, and very quickly, I'll just say this for those of you exploring Christian faith or uh, new to the scriptures. Um, in the Hebrew, the forces of darkness, the power of the devil, the enemy, all of these things you're, you're familiar with. In the Hebrew, the word, the word is the Satan, which means the enemy. And so uh, the, 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 the force from the right from the beginning, uh, the enemy says, um, did God really say that? And in the Hebrew, it's sarcasm. So we don't, we don't really catch it when we read it in English because as English speakers, we, we just kind of read it um, maybe in a linear way. But a Hebrew scholar will tell you that the Hebrew word for when the devil says, oh, certainly, or indeed, your English translation says, the Hebrew word is af. And so when Eve says, this is what God said, the enemy's response is, That's the tone. You know how you've had people in your life say, right, right, no, yeah, no, abs- absolutely, yes. You can, you can tell just by the way they're saying it. It's just dripping with sarcasm. They're sneering at you. They're sneering in your face. And that's what's going on here right at the beginning. Uh, you know, he's, he's, using, he's using it ironically. He's saying certainly ironically. And he's not presenting an argument against God's existence. He's presenting an argument against God's goodness. He sneers at God's goodness. And so the essence of sin in the beginning, you know, you look at it, it, was, it wasn't that they, they uh, you know, physically abused each other, emotionally abused each other, materially oppressed each other. When you look at the first sin, the action was that they, they took and they ate. They decided to determine to uh, define what was good for themselves. This is not a mystical tree. The Bible doesn't give us any sort of detail at all because the detail isn't important about the tree, what the fruit was like, but it's not a mystical tree. It's a fruit tree. It's like all the other trees. This is not a Raiders of the Lost Ark face melting situation. This is just God saying there needs to be a distinction between creation and creator. And by respecting and understanding that distinction, humanity will flourish. And so it was sort of sneering in the face of God. Oh, did God really say that? Is he really good? I don't, he's, he's holding out on you. He's not loving. It's laughable that you think he's loving. He's not good. It's laughable that you think he's good. He's holding out. He can't be trusted. This whole idea of finding fulfillment in God is the opium of the people. So throw this whole idea away and be your own God and live independent from him. In other words, you know, just sever the relationship. And so the essence of original sin is finding fulfillment outside of God, sort of cosmic treason against God, rejecting the love of God. And by rejecting the love of God, you are, re- you are rejecting the logic of the universe. You are rejecting the logic from which the whole cosmos came into being. And you are severate, severing yourself from reality, spiritually, physiologically, emotionally. Uh, because you've said, I, there is no God. I'm going to live apart from him. This is the essence of the first, uh, the first sin. And so the lie, of course, is 
The lie is, well, your eyes are going to be open. I mean, clearly, if you believe in God, there's something wrong with your uh, reasoning faculties. And some of you have struggled with that at school or in vocation with, with folks who sort of sneer at the idea that if you're a person of faith, you can't be a person of faith and also a person of reason. And so there's sort of this, this universal sneer, um, which, of course, isn't an argument. As Tim Keller would say, it's, uh, it's uh, a sneer is uh, it's masquerading as sophistication, but there's really no argument there. And um, so we see this right at the beginning where <clears throat> what he says is, that what the enemy says is, you'll be like God. The English says you'll be like God. In the Hebrew, uh, the, the phrase is even stronger than that. Uh, the phrase is, which is, you will be God. That's what, the phrase, that's what it is. Just sever the relationship. And so this whole idea of the, the enemy saying, your eyes will be opened throughout scripture. That phrase keeps reappearing. Your eyes will be opened. Your eyes will be opened because you've severed the relationship and you need your eyes to be open to see how desperately you need the relationship. Now, has any, I don't know if anybody's ever laughed in your face before, but if you've had somebody laugh in your face or sneer at you um, or reject you, right? You will, think about your emotional response to that. You do not move toward that person. Um, the, the initial human visceral reaction to having someone sneer in your face is to fade to black, step away. You move further away from that person. But when you look at this text and you see that after the devil sneered, God's beloved creation also sneered, in a shocking contradiction of what we deserve, God did not abandon us. He moved towards us, this undeserved love. His response to this divine treason, his response to this scoffing in the face of the creator, his response was to move towards us in love, this radical, divine, unfathomable love. Love came down at Christmas because God was committed to that love since Genesis. And so when you look at uh, what happens next, their eyes are opened and they feel ashamed, tremendous shame. They feel naked. Why do they feel this way? There's this alienation from God, a spiritual alienation. There's shame within themselves. There's a psychological disconnect. There is a shame with each other as they hide. There's this sort of sociological alienation and breakdown. It's the, it's the beginnings of the breakdown the breakdown of humanity. We were created high, but fallen. And so they hide. And they, they go into this me first self-protect mode with the fig leaves. And uh, we as a human race have been making fig leaves ever since, moving into self-protect me first modes. And so what is God's response to all of this? He comes looking. He comes looking for them, not to kill them, to save them, love looks. The God who looks, the God who seeks, the God who chases, the God who pursues. That is on the first page of your Bible, and that is throughout your entire Bible. The God who loves sees, the God who loves chases and seeks to save. And you notice the question that God comes to them with. The question is, where are you? And God is not looking for information. God knows where they are. Doesn't need information. This is an invitation. This is an invitation to confession. Notice that 
God creates everything in perfection. Man and his cosmic treason destroys everything and brings damnation. And God's very next response is an invitation. He's in, he is inviting them into redemption. This is, this is amazing love. An incredible love. Right on the first page of your Bible. He's inviting the confession. He's planning the restoration. And, you know, he's, he's, he's all-knowing. He's not surprised. It's not like when they did that, God turned to the angel and he's like, Michael, are you seeing this? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? What? God was not surprised. And this sometimes gives people existential crisis. As a pastor, I've had to defend this so many times. But people will say things like, maybe you've wondered it. They'll say, well, you know, if God knew we were going to mess the whole thing up, then why did he bother? Here's why he bothered. Because love bothers. Inactivity is not love. Inactivity, stagnant, static way of relating is not love. The reason why God bothered in the first place is because he is love. None of you would teach your children and say, kids, I want to teach you about life. Some people are going to disappoint you or hurt you or let you down or lie to you. I mean, the world is a difficult place. It's a cruel place. Yeah, there's some bright spots, but you know, there's a lot of sadness in the world. So kids, here's how you protect yourself. Don't make any friends, then no one will let you down. Don't, don't go into business and uh, try and use your gifts and abilities to f- make the city flourish because at some point, someone's probably going to stab you in the back, moving their way up the corporate ladder. So don't make friends. Don't make business colleagues. Sh- wolf, do not get married. Spouses are, they are just, that is our recipe for disappointment, am I right? Do not get married. Do not have children. See, you're not going to tell your children, hey, the way to protect yourself is just not have any relationships because that is not the definition of love. Love is not stagnant and static. So the reason why God bothered in the first place is because of what I said before. The whole universe spun out of his desire to share from the beginning. God has been giving everything that is God to everything that is not God. From the beginning, it is love. That's why he bothered. And then, the ne- which leads to the next question. And people say, okay, well, that's really cute. Thanks for that preacher. Um, you know, God w- wanted to create and love. Okay, but since he knew this was going to happen, and if he really loved them, why didn't he just stop it? I mean, why didn't he just swoop down, you know, and just lightning strike and zippity zap, crispy critter, the, the serpent, and that would have been the end of this whole thing. He could have just stopped in the garden. Why didn't God do that? Because overpowering someone by force is not love. And we do not have a cosmic tyrant that overpowered his beloved creation by force. That's not love. You know, imagine next Sunday, uh, Susan's not on the call. And the Sunday after, Susan's not there. And three or four Sundays go by and the kids are like, Where's Susan? And then one of somebody says, you know, Paul, we've noticed we haven't seen Susan lately. And I say, oh, there's a good reason for that. <laughs> I, uh, I started thinking to myself, we've been married going on 25 years this coming May. That's a pretty good run. But uh, I don't know if we're going to make it another 25. Um, I'm getting older and grayer, flabbier. And I know there's a lot of good looking men out there. And I thought to myself, maybe the best way to ensure that my wife only loves me and only me is to build a tower in my backyard and lock her up there. And so Susan's up in a tower in the backyard. I I have totally prevented her ability to direct her love anywhere else. 
And she's, you know, growing her hair out, trying to escape. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, no, none of you are going to say, that's the most loving thing I've heard this week. You're going to say, Paul, somebody call the authorities. Paul is a crazy tyrant. He's an oppressor. He's an abuser. He's terrible. So <laughs> our expectations on God to sort of tidy up Genesis 3 in such a way that humanity could have never made a mistake is to remove the essence of his love. God gave us in his great love and in his great wisdom, dignity, including the dignity to slap him in the face if we so choose to. And our parents chose exactly that. And so in God's unfathomable love, he moved towards his creation even after we brought brokenness to all of creation. And so this is a recurring theme. When you look at the book of Genesis, the way that, the, the, the way that Genesis 1 even talks about how the world was created is like a dance of love. It's poetic. There's, it's balanced and there's three days of, of separating and three days of filling and it keeps on repeatedly saying, God saying, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And in English, we read it's good like a you know, quality control checklist. Okay, that's good. That part's not defective. The trees are good. The mountains are good. The animals are good. Check, check. It's not, God's not doing quality control. But it's good, it's good, it's good. In Hebrew, it's a dance. It's a celebration. Genesis 1 is a song of creation. It's God dancing over his creation with just tremendous love over what he's created. And so the, re- the significance of all of that is, to, is to, to, to realize that it is from that that God vowed that there would be that first Christmas day because he wants to restore. The Bible begins in a garden and spoiler alert, when you read Revelation 21, it ends in a garden city. I mean, God bookends this thing. He's going to restore everything. And so Jesus Christ comes to live the loving life you and I are not living perfectly. He lives it perfectly. He loves neighbor perfectly. He loves God perfectly. He he lives that life of perfect love. He dies an atoning death because of his love. He dies because you and I, everyone on this live stream and everyone in the world, we are sinners when the Bible uses the word sin, for those of you who are uh, exploring Christian faith and you're like, well, now you lost me because now you're talking about sin and, and, I don't, and I have hangups about sin. Listen, sin is not like, cannot be reduced to a list of things you're supposed to do and not do. And Christians aren't like, oh, do everything on, on, the, on the good list and then you get into heaven. And we're not, we're not like the religion of Islam, which is like, if your good outweighs the bad, in the end, Allah accepts you. Right? That when I talk with my Muslim friends, that's how they describe it. Listen, no. Sin is a condition we're born into. Sin is a condition humanity has been born into. Sin has all of humanity on an irreversible trajectory toward death. That's the bottom line. And so what God has done as he has graciously interrupted that trajectory in Jesus Christ so that death would not be final. So he lived the life of perfect love we're not living. He died the atoning death because of his love for us to save us from that trajectory. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is significant because it is a window into the new, new humanity. It is a window into, uh, you know, it's a teaser trailer of what is coming as God restores creation, restores this earth, restores you and I, raises us from death itself to enjoy it. And the, that's the significance of God's love on the move. So as you are going about your Christmas shopping and you see this word love plastered everywhere, printed everywhere, on mugs and 
sweaters and everything, when you see this Christmas love everywhere, don't just get swept up in sort of the culturally mandated cheer. You know, Christmas for the Christian is not like, oh, let's just kind of go into nostalgia and think about cocoa and lights and like live in a Norman Rockwell painting. Because if if you are going through difficult times and struggle and, and family is not a good time for you, then Christmas is going to just be straight up depressing because it's really nothing more than this sort of culturally mandated feels that's going to be very difficult for you to drum up and have. But when you see love in the context of the love of God and what it means that first Christmas that Christ came for us in love, you're going to remember it's not a cliche. It is the utter determination of God to rescue and redeem and restore. And that is what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. So in Genesis 3.15, at the end of that text that we read this morning, when it's, God preaches the very first gospel, and the audience, of course, of the first gospel are those who need it, our first parents, Adam and Eve, who need the Savior. But this very first prophecy of the Savior, he looks straight in the eyes of the enemy. He looks straight in the eyes of the Satan, and he says... A savior will come and you will bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. It's an image of a snake, of a serpent, venomous bite into the heel of the savior. And when he bites the heel of the savior, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's fatal, but not final. Because as Christ would rise in the end on judgment day, the strike that our savior does against the devil's head is fatal and final. And this is the good news and the hope, of course, of the, of the end of the gospel and the restoration of all things. And so this love not only describes this movement of God from millennia before the first Christmas, but it also is the call on our life as Christians in light of the first Christmas because we want to now, of course, indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, united to Christ, live these lives of love. And it is this others-centered, for your benefit, at my expense, love. That's what you see in right here in Genesis 3. When God decides to move to redeem, it is at his expense for our benefit that he would come that first Christmas day and move throughout human history in order to, to do so. And so having found this love of God through Christ and we've received this love of God through Christ by trusting in Christ, we now are called to create an ecosystem in this church, here in Redeemer, we are called, you, not just me, Peter, Rick, you know, Susan, the leadership, all of us, we are called to create an ecosystem of this kind of love here in, in, in our church community. A love that says, I will live and relate to you for your benefit, even if it's at my expense. I will reach out to you and care for you and I will do these things uh, because of my love for you. And as we create an ecosystem, and it's difficult to do it in these, in these, in these days of the pandemic when we can't see each other often, but uh, we, we yet we're committed to do it so that we can be a blessing to the city and uh, bring a sense of joy as ministers of love in this city because we have a, a very deep sense of hope, a very deep sense of, of uh, peace and of love that is rooted in this love of God, this God who we know is going to restore all things. And so the message of the entire Bible, starting right here in Genesis 3, is that the creator God is the redeeming God. In the garden, Adam failed to obey God concerning a tree. And in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, the second Adam, obeyed God by submitting to crucifixion on a tree. The enemy deceived the woman to bring death. So God, through the womb of a woman, will bring eternal life.
Adam and Eve took and they ate and death came on a tree. And at the Lord's table, we take and we eat and we celebrate that we have life because Jesus died on a tree. God redeemed even the very actions that brought our damnation and they now serve as reminders of our redemption. The cross was a tree of death for Jesus, but it's a tree of life for us. And so our world, which is beautiful and broken because of the destructive power of sin that's effective everything, while that may be true, our God in his great love has moved from millennia to come in Jesus Christ to be born into poverty into a filthy feeding trough in Bethlehem to restore absolutely everything. Mm 